everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Boy, do we have a great show for you today. We have three guests, a total of three guests. First, we're going to be talking to Sky, who is a high school student and a Palestine activist who's been facing a lot of pushback over her Palestine activism. Then we're going to be speaking to historian Zach Foster about Palestine. And then we're going to be talking to journalist Kevin Gastola about Julian Assange and his trial. But before we start, of course, make sure you like the stream. Just give it a thumbs up. That's a really easy way to show your support for the stream. It's a free way to support the stream. Also, subscribe if you haven't already. Please subscribe. And to do that, you just hit subscribe and then the bell. And um, if you can become Patreon supporters, you can do that at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you pay for $1 a month, you're supporting the show. If you pay for $5 a month, you're supporting the show and you're getting special content, exclusive content that only Patreon people get. But of course, uh, we keep almost all of this unpaywalled because we want to make sure that you all get this important news. There's so much propaganda, especially around this issue. So please do tweet this out, share it with your friends and family and loved ones and enemies. And um, I think that's all the announcements that I have to make. So we're going to bring on our first guest. Uh, Very excited. Uh, She's making her Katie Helper Show debut. Uh, I think she may be making a YouTube debut. Sky is a 15-year-old high school student who lives in Maryland. She's a Marxist activist and does public speaking, rallying, and demonstrations for Palestine. Recently, she has experienced heightened censorship and harassment from her school administration. So welcome, Sky. Hello. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. So tell us first how you got involved in pro-Palestine activism. Um. Well, when it came to my activism in general, I began doing a lot of work for feminism. And eventually I realized that race and class struggle is directly intertwined into any form of oppression. So that snowballed into me becoming a Marxist. And when I became a Marxist, I realized that true liberation cannot be possible without Palestinian liberation. So I began organizing and demonstrating for Palestine. And do you have any like like were your parents political or any relatives who are political or did you come to it on your own? I was raised by my brother, who's a really big Marxist, really, really smart, and he raised me. Oh, okay. So he raised you well, if I do say so myself. So tell me about the kind of Palestine um, uh, solidarity that you engage in. What what does that look like? It started, um, I first went to a lot of vigils for Palestine since I live really close to D.C., Um, And then it was marches and rallies and demonstrations. And I realized that agitation is one very important part of revolution, but it's one part. So I began continuing to educate myself, for example, on Cuba, on the Philippines, on Sudan, on Congo, on Haiti. Um, And through educating myself and then being able to educate my peers, I've also been able to spread more awareness in my school about Palestine. And I also do a a lot of public speaking for Palestine as well. 
And so tell us about the kind of pushback that you've gotten. Um, from my school administration in particular, um, I've been pulled out of class like plenty of times, like when it comes to concern about my um, about my activism and what I say about Palestine, I've been told that saying the word like Zionist or like Zionism is like attacking somebody for their religious belief and that I'm not allowed to say the word Zionist or Zionism in the school building. I've been pulled out of like multiple core classes to buy security um, in order to kind of berate me about continuing to talk about Palestine. And what about from your classmates? Um, I've had, obviously, like, I don't want to take away the attention from, like, um, because I'm not Muslim, I'm not Arab, I'm not Palestinian, so I don't, I acknowledge the fact that I have more privilege in that sense, but I have been, like, shouted at, like, oh, we don't allow terrorist supporters here in the hallways. Um, there's been, like, I've received, like, plenty of, like, nasty DMs from my classmates, but, yeah. Right. Um, and... Tell me more about uh, how you see the world and why you see Palestinian liberation as key to um, political progress and to liberation in general. Yeah, so I think the thing about politics and like especially like economics, like at least to like high schoolers, is that it's just like kind of like this another like niche, like nerdy hobby that you can get into. Um, and part of it is about, you know, living in the suburbs and being surrounded with sort of like this bubble from class struggle. But the truth is that many of our issues, whether it comes to gender or racial inequality, always ties back to the core issue of capitalism and class struggle. And the way that this relates back to Palestine is that um, the thing that whenever we have like conflicts, for example, in the Middle East, it's always like, oh, it's just happening in the Middle East because it's happening in the Middle East. But that's not true. The Middle East is a very, very crucial um, is a very, very crucial region when it comes to maintaining control over the global South and maintaining that kind of capitalist control. And imperialism is the highest form of capitalism. And there's no way that we can break free from the chains of neocolonialism and capitalism if we don't liberate all of our comrades, which includes Palestine, Congo, Sudan, and so many more. And are there any organizations that you're involved in or political parties or... Um even, I don't know, some kind of networks that you've created for people your age to be involved in your political work? Yeah, um, there's this um, socialist Marxist-Leninist party in D.C. called PSL, Party for Socialism and Liberation. I've worked with right, them which a lot. is what Claudia de la Cruz, who I've had on my show, that's her party. She's running for president with that party. Yeah, um, they have like another branch. It mainly focuses on college students, Um students for socialism, but I've also worked with them. So, yeah. Nice. And is Palestine something that kids your age you think care about to the extent that you've experienced it? Um, I think at least speaking from my experience in like the MoCo area, which is like the general area that I live in. Um, I think especially, I kind of mentioned this a little bit before, but a lot of the majority of the kids in our area more on the affluent side, definitely more upper middle class. There's less of an awareness about class struggle. So politics is always something that's kind of like we're privileged enough to kind of put on the shelf. So I think that although that there definitely are kids who are educated and informed about Palestine and care, there's also a lot of kids who don't. And there's also a very, very high number of Zionist um, kids in my area. 
And were you ever uh, sympathetic to Zionist arguments? Did you ever go through a Zionist phase or did you even, not even a Zionist phase, but were you kind of, um, um, did you fall for the mainstream media's representation of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Yeah, sorry. None of us are immune to propaganda, no matter how we like to, how informed or how smart we like to portray ourselves. So definitely when um, the, the conflict first began, I, with all the bombardment of mass media, because the thing about mass media is it's not always about trying to get you on their side. It's also trying to get people to be neutral and not feel like they have to go out and get this information. So in the start, you know, I was definitely kind of putting it on the shelf. But then my brother was like, you claim to be a socialist. You need to know about this stuff. So I I went out and I learned and I started demonstrating. And um, what kind of books have you read or articles have you read or how have you, how did you go about learning about this issue? Um, well, when it comes specifically to Palestine, um, it's mainly through journalists that I followed. Um, and that's like, that's kind of like the thing because I, I do understand that we all have our own bandwidth but it really is not that much to dedicate a bit of time to you know um supporting journalists who are in gaza but also not just when it comes to learning about palestine specifically it's also about learning about um class struggle and learning about revolution in general so the black jacobins by clr james is a really good book for socialist revolutionaries um and the Communist Manifest, I know it's like, it's like, oh my God, it's all the way back. Like, what could that have to do with like the current time? But when it comes to really acknowledging how deep-rooted class struggle is, and that class struggle isn't just like, oh, there poor people exist. When you come to really start that journey of understanding that, then it helps make um, ad- advocating for Palestine a lot easier. Cool. And um, anything else you want to highlight? Any writers, journalists, books? Uh, organizers like do you just want to take the chance to mention anyone um yeah definitely I think that um so like first and foremost like when it comes to like Palestine we should obviously keep our eyes on Palestine um but that also should mean that we should understand that should come synonymous with solidarity with Sudan with Congo there's a lot of activism going on DC actually for Sudan and Congo and those are countries that are also being torn apart by imperialism and colonialism. Um, I already mentioned PSL, but some other, I noticed that the Palestinian youth movement, which is a grassroots movement for, um, for Palestinian youth to advocate for Palestine, a lot of their, their um, posts on social media, especially like Instagram, um, is being severely like pushed down um, and restricted, which is really upsetting, but it happens. Um, journalists like Prince Coda on Instagram is some people that I really think is undervalued. Um, and following, um, and sorry, following, um, organizations like Answer Coalition, PSL, and staying up to date with advocacy for Palestine is really important. And on that note, to just like kind of close off my really big thought is that the thing is that I've kind of forgot to mention this earlier, but Jewish students who are pro-Palestine, they get so much heat. They get so much heat. It's actually insane. Um, Because like if a Jewish person is pro-Palestine, I've heard people say, oh, you're a fake Jew. You don't care about our community. You're a self-hating Jew. And it's, it's really the amount of 
I would I would call it anti-Semitism that people go through for advocating for Palestine is insane. And that's the thing. If we want to create a world where Jewish safety is not only protected, but also respected, it means creating a world where you don't commit war crimes and wave somebody's religious symbol in the air. It means making sure that people don't think that Jewish safety is exclusive to Palestinian safety. And we need to remember that our advocacy for Palestine isn't anti-Jewish safety. It's synonymous with Jewish safety. So reading up on that is also really important because, yeah. Can you explain that? It's a really important concept. And yes, I mean, I'm someone who I get called a capo and those are the people who were like a, uh, supposed to, you know, be prison guards for basically like subcontracted by the Nazis to, uh, to treat other Jews, to beat up other Jews, kill other Jews if necessary. Capo, uh, fake Jew, as you said. But can you talk more about how Jewish safety and Palestinian safety are interconnected? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because um, here's the thing, although I'm not excusing Zionists or Zionism at all, a lot of the times I need, I think people need to realize that there aren't so many Zionists because they, they just spawn that way. Um, it's an exploitation of generational trauma. The fear that Jewish people have for their own safety, that is real and that is valid. But instead of addressing that in a way that actually attacks white and ethnic supremacy, it has been exploited by by capitalists and by the ruling class to propagate um, more ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people. Um, so until we address the fact that the reason why so many Jewish people are easily being exploited by this propaganda system is because we have failed to actually address the white supremacy that, that propagates modern day anti-Semitism. For example, like when we see like any like genuine acts of anti-Semitism today, like for example, I think it was Charlottesville. It was like a few years ago. It was, it was like the, the people like chanting, like Jews will not replace us. They weren't attacking Israel. They were attacking Jewish people. We're starting to promote the idea that Jewish safety is about protecting Israel, not protecting Jewish people. And that's so dangerous. And that's the thing. Um, when it comes to Jewish youth and any youth, children are not stupid. Children want the truth. And if you are actively exploiting them through propaganda like education, and when it's so gross to the extent of pro of exploiting a generational trauma of um, as gross as the generational trauma of the Jewish people, then that is that is modern day anti-Semitism. It's actively taking away attention that we could be putting towards taking apart systems of neo-Nazism, neo-colonialism, and white supremacy. And people don't realize that activists of of any religion, whether it's it's Islam or Judaism, are getting attacked partially on the basis of their religion when they advocate for Palestine, because this is not about Muslims versus Jews. This is about the working people, the common people versus the ruling class. Well, thank you so much, Sky, and come back. We'd love to hear more uh, from you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. See you, see you soon, Sky. Thank you. And, and stay strong. Don't let the bullies uh, shut you up. Let thank us know you. if they try to do anything else. We'll We'll, we'll do something back. We'll write a letter. We'll start a petition. We'll, we'll put them on blast. We'll dox them. Thank you. Bye, Sky. Okay, so that was great. And we're bringing on our next guest. Zachary Foster has a PhD in Near Eastern Studies from Princeton University. He is a fellow at the Rutgers Center for Security, Race, and Rights. He runs a digital archive called Palestine Nexus and writes a newsletter called Palestine in Your Inbox. So welcome, Zach. 
Thanks so much for having me, Katie. Thanks for coming on. It's my pleasure. I thought we could start off by talking about, you know what, let's let's do the personal to political. Let's do that shift. And then we'll, we're going to go from uh, the personal to the political. And also uh, we'll get to what's happening today in Palestine. But let's start with some background. So, you know, one of the things that Sky actually was referring to this, but obviously Zionists like to portray anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism as synonymous. And one of the things that we try to do on this show is decouple those things, Jewishness and uh, Zionism. So I want to know how you went from being a Jewish Zionist to a Jewish anti-Zionist. Yeah, thanks for that question. Love talking about Judaism and Zionism and how I transitioned from Zionist, anti-Zionist. So I grew up in Jewish Detroit, um, going to Jewish schools and Jewish summer camps and Jewish youth groups and went to Israel with my Jewish youth group. And right, all those institutions are also Zionist, right? So I could have said I went to a Zionist school and a Zionist summer camp and a Zionist youth group um, <clears throat> because Judaism and Zionism were very much uh, uh, two sides of the same coin, right? We would celebrate a Passover. Uh, we would celebrate Israel's Independence Day. Uh, we would we would say the prayer for the state of Israel in synagogue. We would say the Shema in synagogue, right? You didn't even notice a difference. It wasn't, it was just part of Judaism if you weren't paying attention. Um, but of course, Judaism is a 3000 year old religion. Uh, Zionism is a 140 year old political ideology, right? So we're talking about religion on the one hand and political ideology on the other. These are very different things. That's why you can obviously be a Jewish Zionist. You can be a Jewish anti-Zionist. You can be a non-Jewish Zionist. You can be a non-Jewish anti-Zionist, right? There's no real correlation uh, uh, between Zionism and Judaism. And I think, uh, it, it, look, someone who grows up in the environment I grew up in is not going to become an anti-Zionist overnight. It was obviously a process, right? The, I, I think the beginning of that process for me was actually spending some time in Jerusalem, in Palestine, in Israel. Um, I wanted to improve my Hebrew, I wind up in a Hebrew language class with half Palestinians who uh, are learning Hebrew for different reasons than me. Um, and, and that was my first introduction to Palestinian culture and Arabic and Palestinian life and more generally. And I was just a curious person. I wanted to learn more. And again, the beginning for me was not political. I was just, it was just more of a cultural curiosity. But I think the next thing that happened for me was I got more interested in history. And if you get interested in is Israel history and start reading Israeli history, as it's written by uh, historians, Palestinian and Israeli historians, you discover some very disturbing things. You discover that every single major Zionist leader, uh, starting with Theodore Herzl in the 1890s, uh, going on to Arthur Rupin in the 1930s, and going on to Yosef Weitz and Jeff Zabotinsky, and all, and obviously David Ben Gurion, and almost every major uh, uh, Zionist thinker is asking the question, well, how are we going to establish a Jewish state in a land that is 70, 80, 90% non-Jewish? That's a problem. They, they all struggle with that. And they land on different answers. Some of them are very naive and believe that you know, the Zionists are going to um, you know, bring economic development and prosperity and, uh, to, to, the, to the country. And thus, the Palestinians will accept political subjugation. And there are some naive enough to believe that. But the majority view is that, no, these people are, have deep roots in the country and they have a strong identity. And uh, no, they're, they're not going to accept subjugation. They're going to resist. Um, and what do you do with a group of people who resists domination and subjugation? They all pretty much settle on uh, the same answer, which is transfer, uh, which is another way, which is how they described uh, 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 ethnic cleansing in the 1930s and 40s. 
Anyway, so that, that, that we start learning the history of, oh my God, the Zionists are talking about transfer openly. Um, at some point after the 1920s, you have one Zionist in the 1920s, Israel Zangwill. He's very open about it and is publishing all these articles because he actually thinks the Arabs are going to be like voluntarily transferring. It's going to be good for them because they're going to get all this land in Transjordan and Syria, right? So he's talking about it openly in the 1920s. And then the, and, and, and then the Palestinian Arabs quote him and be like, to, to, to demonstrate the uh, Zionism's uh, uh, ultimate aims and how nefarious the whole project is. Um, so anyways, they realized we better keep quiet about the whole transfer discussions. So anyways, you, you, you start to read the history of Zionism uh, as it's written by historians. By the way, plenty of them right wing. This isn't political. This is just- Benny Morris. Benny, right. You don't have to be a, a progressive to have written this history. As you just said, you start you're learning about, so, so you learn about, the transfer concept, the transfer thinking. What are we gonna? How are we gonna solve this problem? And then you read the history of the 1948 war itself, right? Where in the first few months of the war, Zionist forces expel tens, if not hundreds, of thousands of Palestinians by force. They go from village to village uh, in the central in the central parts of the country, uh, Ramle, Lid. They go to the coast, Tantura, and then by the fall, they go to the north, the Galilee, and they expel Palestinians from their village by gunpoint, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. And then by the end of the war. They shoot at anyone trying to come back to their home, right? In the year after the war, they massacre more than a thousand Palestinians. The guns fell silent. The, the armistice agreements have already been signed. The war is over. They're slaughtering Palestinians on a daily basis. Palestinians returning to their homes uh, uh, because they were expelled from them and the war ended and they want to go back to their homes. So they're trying to go back and they're being slaughtered. And when you read that history, how can you not feel that this whole project was born in sin? And that this is a terrible, how is it that we're supposed to get liberation through another people's disenfranchisement and expulsion and displacement? So I think that's the starting point. And then, of course, the, it just gets worse, right? This is just the beginning. As you read what happened in the 50s, in the 1956 campaign, when Israel goes into Gaza on November 2nd and kills, grabs every male above the age of 15 in Khan Yunis, lines them up in the city center and executes them. You know, Then they go to Rafah which every, all eyes are apparently on Rafah now. But then they go to Rafah a, month, a, few, a few weeks later, and then they massacre another 150 people in Rafah. You're like, this is supposedly, you know, little Israel against all these big bag Arab countries is going on neo-colonial wars, massacring Palestinians in Gaza in the 50s. And then, and then you learn about the occupation and you go visit and then you, you're curious. So you go to Masal Fariyata, you, you go to Homsa in the Northern West Bank. You know, you go to you, you go to Nablus, you go to Janine, and you see on your, with your own two eyes the violence, the settler violence. You know, so I, I think it's it's not one thing, but it's it's reading the history and 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 learning Arabic so you can speak to Palestinians and learn what their life is like, and going in around and visiting people and all of this fear mongering and oh my God, they want to kill us, right? That's the narrative you're raised with. What you discover is that it's all fiction. Was there a particular aha moment or a particular myth you saw through um, that you recall that shifted things for you? One thing I didn't mention was that I traveled to the Balkans uh, as a university student uh, in 2005-06. And I, I traveled with a group of half-Jews, half-Palestinians. And that was very impactful. Hearing stories, you know, here, here we are, Jews and Palestinians talking about Israel and Palestine. And we are, and, and we're hearing stories from Palestinians. Like, you know, my parents, my grandparents were expelled from Palestine by gunpoint. We want to go back to Palestine, but we can't because we're Palestinian. But you, American Jews, who don't,
don't speak a word of Hebrew, who have one Jewish grandparent, who have never been to the country, you can go and get a passport tomorrow. And you're like, wow, that's kind of fucked up. Sorry, excuse my language. But it, it's, so that was very impactful. Um, and then I think just spending more time, you know, it, it's gradual. It, it, it doesn't happen overnight. It's, it, you know, it's like, okay, at some point I also, I'm not so worried what my parents think. I'm an intellectually mature person. I can formulate my own thoughts. I don't need my handheld anymore. In fact, I have a PhD in history. So maybe you should be listening to me rather than the other way around. Have you been able to convert anyone in your family? <laughs> I mean, I would say the short answer is no, but I would say the longer answer is that, yes, I, th I do think it's very hard when you have someone in your own family, you know, talking about what's happening all the time, not to, not for that not to have an impact on you. I think it has. I think it would be, I think people would be, you know, maybe a little bit uh, sh uh, quiet, to, shy to admit that. But yeah, I, I think definitely it does have an impact for sure. So can you tell us about, before we turn to Palestine, I'm curious about two things that we don't hear a lot about. One is the anti-Semitism of Zionism and then the anti-Zionism among Jews. These are, these are great topics because I really think it gets at the core of how it came to be that Jews in Eastern and Western Europe embraced this ideology called Zionism, right? It was because of anti-Semitism. So even when you talk about where Zionism came from, what are the origins? The first thing you have to do is talk about anti-Semitism. So they're, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. And this is why many of the early or earliest Zionists, Theodore Herzl, Max Nordu, Arthur Rupin, right, Zev Jabotinsky, they internalized many of the anti-Semitic beliefs circulating about Jews uh, at the time, right? You have Theodore Herzl. People don't realize this. They like to quote from the Jewish state. That's his most famous book. But he wrote another pamphlet, right? He was a, a prolific journalist and writer and author. Um, he wrote another pamphlet, and it was called Marshall. And uh, excuse me, I, my German pronunciation, but um, that the, the best translation for that word, and again, I don't know if we're going to get banned here, but the English word, the best English translation for that word is kike, okay? And the first sentence of the pamphlet, it's like a 15-page pamphlet. The first sentence is, if you oppose Zionism, you are a marshal. Yeah, because for him, the Jews who wanted to live in exile, who he saw as weak, who he saw as accepting political subjugation, right? Accepting their status as uh, oppressed peoples, that they were weak. And that that was a problem. They were miserable for, for having those weak beliefs. They were, you know, they had mocking grins and they were, you know, um, basically he's, he's very, I mean, it's, it's an anti-Semitic text. In fact, one, one scholar has described the text as basically an anti-Semite's dream, quote unquote. That, that, that's an academic describing the text, okay? And, 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 and I think the reason is obvious, is the people who embrace Zionism, the Jews who embrace Zionism, were the Jews who internalized the anti-Semitic beliefs circulating about them. They, they accepted these beliefs. They said, oh my God, the, the anti-Semites are correct. We are weak. We don't have control over our own destiny. You know, and, 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 and he's not the only one. Max Nordu, by the way, who was also, um, he, who was kind of Herzl's secondhand man, right? He was also uh, helped organize the first Zionist Congress in Basel in 1879, uh, 1897. So his works, he, he was a very popular, he was a best-selling author in the 1880s. His works are replete with anti-Semitic portrayals of the Jew, okay? The Jew is being circumscribed and diseased, um, that, you know, the Jew has inherently different abilities than the non-Jews. The Jews excel at politics. 
uh, because of their shrewdness, right? All these, these kind of very anti-Semitic beliefs that if I said them today on Twitter, I would be canceled instantly, okay? Arthur Rupin, he was the, Arthur Rupin was the, the head of the, the Zionist office in Palestine. He was kind of the Ben-Gurion before Ben-Gurion was, talking 1910s, okay? He rejected Jewish immigrants uh, from places like Ethiopia because he believed that Ethiopian Jews would, um, would, didn't have a real, a, a real blood connection to, to the Eastern European Jews, and, and therefore they were, they were racially impure and they would taint Jewish blood. This was the head of the political office in, in Palestine saying this, okay? Okay, so deeply, deeply anti-Semitic beliefs. I mean, in his case, actually, I would just describe it more as racist beliefs, but I mean, he was racist and anti-Semitic. White supremacist. White supremacist. And then you had Jeff Zabotinsky. Uh, uh, basically, you know, he, I mean, he, he was the revisionist Zionist, right? So he had, he had an even more vile attitude towards the Jews who concealed their identity and they were trodden upon. They were easily frightened. They accepted submission. Right, all of these stereotypes, he embraced them all, and that's why he went all in on Zionism. So I, I, these are not random Zionists, by the way. As you said, these are the most important Zionists of of the era, and they were and they harbored anti-Semitic beliefs. They said things in their writings and in their speeches that if I said today, I would be canceled instantly. And then you have the non-Jewish uh, Zionist anti-Semites like Balfour. Yeah, I mean that. that this is, I mean, a much. I, I think like, um, you know. The, the, the Zionist anti-Semites, you know, I think that the, the, you can make counter arguments, right? That, okay, maybe they believe these things, but they think they, they thought they were changeable, solvable problems. Okay, so, you know, but, 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 the, but the anti-Semitic uh, uh, non-Jews, right, they, um, they, they did not believe these things could be changed uh, by reformulating the Jew, by creating this new Jew, this muscular Jew. No, 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 no. Their solution to anti-Semitism aligned very much with the Zionist solution to anti-Semitism, which was, you know, send the Jews to Europe, uh, to Palestine, get them out of, get all these filthy Jews out of Europe and let them establish a, a state in Palestine. Wow, wh- that, solves two, that solves our problem and it solves their problem. It's like win-win. Uh, and, and in fact, I mean, people don't realize this, but we're not talking about, you know, a pastor here and there. We're talking about important politicians. Okay, so you have Kaiser Wilhelm II. Okay, so he is the German emperor in the late 19th century. Uh, so he is emperor of, one of the most powerful European states, maybe second or third, um, he's, he said the most anti-Semitic things you could possibly imagine. I mean, this guy is really like the who's who of anti-Semites. He's like top five. He visits Palestine in 1898 and part of this goal to help establish a, a Jewish state in Palestine, he declares his support for Zionism because that, he, he believes the Jews who killed our savior, quote unquote, right? He's still of this kind of more religious anti-Semitism uh, of you. But basically... In order to rid, the Jews have been exploiting Christians in Europe for, for, for centuries, right? That's his belief. So wouldn't it be great if, if we got them all out of Europe? He also, by the way, believes that Jews have, are very powerful, right? They're the financiers, Jewish capital. Um, and wouldn't it be great if the German empire is the one perceived to be uh, uh, supporting the establishment of the Jewish state? Because then kind of we're the protector of Zionism. That's going to have all these benefits for us. And that's, the, that's his view at the time. And of course, that is, by the way, uh, uh, the same thing that Arthur, Arthur Balfour believes um, it, 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 with, with the Balfour Declaration during World War I, when the, the, the Brits have this belief that if they pass the Balfour Declaration, uh, um, that's going to rile up all these American Zionists, American Jews, to, to, to push their government to enter the war effort on the side of the Allied powers, out of this, again, out of this anti-Semitic belief that Jews control the world, 
and American Jews are have the ability to like bring the United States into World War One, and and then that is kind of the immediate uh, uh, context for, for um you know for the issuance of the Balfour Declaration in 1917. So there's a long, deep history. I mean, we have, I mean, you're talking like dozens and dozens of of, of anti-Semitic Christian pastors and politicians. We haven't we haven't even talked about the Hungarian politician Istotsky, who. In 1878, okay, he gives a speech in the Hungarian parliament calling for the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine. So many of these guys actually predated most of 1878. Zionism doesn't really exist, okay? There is no Zionist movement in 1878, okay? And yet you have these Hungarian anti-Semitic politicians who are calling for a Jewish state in Palestine, and then he becomes a spokesperson for the anti-Semitic movement in Hungary in the 1880s and 1890s, um, and actually is part, and there are always pogroms against Jews in Hungary. He's directly responsible for killing Jews. Wow. And then on the other side, can you talk about Jewish anti-Zionism? I mean, I think a lot of people know about, for instance, uh, Jewish Voice for Peace. But can you talk about the history of this? Yeah, certainly. So. Look, the, you know, Jews. You have you have non uh, non non Jewish Zionists and and anti Jewish Zionists, really from the beginning, right? Because you know when when Zionism first comes about, um, you know, uh, basically it, it's treated with some amount of hostility uh, in 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 Europe as well as the United States as well as in the Middle East. Pretty much wherever you have Jews, uh, in uh, let's say from 1890s until the mid 1930s. You have a tremendous amount of, of Jewish opposition, and I mean, we can start in the United States, where you have the Reformed Jewish community. Uh, so, so you know, we're talking Reformed Jews of uh, the Pittsburgh Platform, 1885. This is kind of the foundational document of the Reformed Jewish movement, um, at least in the United States. And it's they basically come out and say directly, well, "We do not support Jewish immigration to Palestine," because for, for reason uh, why? Uh, because if because that is going to threaten our own status in the United States, we're trying to assimilate. We want to be uh, as American as any other American, and by associating us with this movement to uh, establish a Jewish state in Palestine, people are going to think we have dual loyalties that we're actually loyal to this state in Palestine rather than loyal Americans. And so please don't associate us with this movement. Which is what APAC, the ADL, and Israel all do when they suggest that being Jewish means being Zionist. They're feeding into that anti-Semitic dual loyalty trope. These people who claim that they see anti-Semitic tropes all over, somehow when they perpetuate the biggest one, they don't see it. They do see it. They're just opportunists, you know, Zionists. They're, they're, they have a political commitment. They don't care about the safety of Jews. Look, today, some of the, the, the most raging anti-Semites in the United States, well, guess what? They're also raging Zionists. Have you heard of Pastor John Hagee? I mean, have you, like, have you seen some of the stuff this guy said? So anyways, th- this tradition... Of, of 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 anti-Semitism and Christian Zionism extends all the way to the present, and and in fact you have tens of millions of. Uh, we'll get back to the Jewish anti-Zionists in a sec, but just to finish the point, you have obviously tens of millions of Americans who believe that at the end of days, I mean you know this, but at the end of days, you know all the Jews are going to wind up in the Holy Land, and when they don't accept Christ as the Lord and Savior, they're all going to burn in hell, and and that's why they're Zionists because ultimately they, they're going to think basically Jews are all going to. You know, die for this uh, for, for, for 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 you know uh, the coming of the of kind of the, the, this sort of the end of days and these eschatological fantasies about um, the, the kind of a new kingdom uh, coming uh, with, with the return of Jesus Christ. So, in any case, those uh, just to point out that the, we, we kind of stopped the story in let's say in the 1910s, 20s, but obviously that story continues all the way to the present day, right? Um, 
but as is the case with Jewish uh, Jewish anti-Zionism, so like we said, in the United States, um, you have, like we said, we, t- we talked about the Pittsburgh platform, but in the aftermath of, of World War I, you know, President Woodrow Wilson, uh, U.S. president at the time, comes out in, in support of the Balfour Declaration, by the way. And then, this is little known, because, you know, the people interested in Zionism are usually Zionists, so they don't like talking about this stuff. But there was a there was a petition signed by 299 prominent American Jews at the time, and they they rejected the idea of Jewish Palestine. They said we're American, not we 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 have no desire to move to Palestine. Please don't associate us with this movement. Then, I mean, I would point out another strain within, um, basically within Jewish opposition to Zionism, which I think is probably the most common form of Jewish opposition to Zionism today. But um, I think that there were early, much earlier incarnations of this. And if you don't mind me actually quoting uh, from this guy, because he's, he's little known, but he literally says things in 1919 that could have been said today, and they're just as powerful today as they were 125 years ago, uh, 105 years ago. Okay, so this guy, he's, he's an Orientalist, so he's, you know, he's kind of a, let's call him a historian of the Middle East. I mean, they called them Orientals at the time. No, not pejoratively, that was just... Not the way Saeed calls it. Sorry, I should have clarified that. But basically, this guy in 1919, his name is Morris Jastrow Jr., okay? And he writes his book, and here's what he says. Quote, the presence of so many nationalities in Palestine uh, of today is the all-sufficient argument in favor of creating a Palestinian state, not a Jewish state or a Mohammedan state or a Christian state or an Anglo-Saxon state or a Gaelic state or a Teutonic state. In Palestine, the conditions definitely preclude a state of a single nationality except by forcible submission of other nationalities represented. He said that in 1919. And here we are, 105 years later, um, you know, living with the consequences of his incredibly uh, uh, insightful prediction. Um, so so, so that, that view was present, and he was Jewish. He was originally from Poland. You know, so that view has been present for more than 100 years. Um, and then I would say, I mean, I think that the most commonly understood, uh, I think, known form of Jewish anti-Zionism actually comes from religious Jews, right? And these were, the, these were sort of the OG of uh, Jewish anti-Zionists who, uh, when Zionism first came about, were like, oh, we've seen this before. A movement of Jews, you know, claiming to want to, you know, uh, like send Jews to the Holy Land? That's heresy, right? Because if you're a traditional halakhic observing Jew, you, you, you abide by Jewish law, you know, um, basically your view has always been for many, many centuries, if not millennia, that... Um, at the end of days, Jews have eschatological beliefs, just like Christians. At the end of ge- days, the Mashiach, the Messiah, will return to planet Earth. Um, and, and, and as a result of that, there will be an ingathering of Jews to the Holy Land, to the land of Israel, to the land of Palestine. But, but, only God can decide when that happens. And by, by trying to actively uh, uh, convince Jews to move to Palestine, you're playing God's role. You're acting as if you are yourself God which is heresy, right? If you pretend to be God in Judaism, that's about as heretical thing as that you can do in Judaism. And Jews were burned at the stake for that, right? So the, the, the traditional uh, Torah-observant Jews said, this Zionism thing looks a lot like uh, other heresies we've seen before. We reject this movement. And, and, and that, that, that uh, anti-Zionist Jewish uh, movement continues to this day. You have 100,000 Satmar Hasidim who um, you know, are, 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 are basically non-Zionist Jews for that reason. And you even have many tens of thousands of, I believe, Agudas Israel is the name in Israel, who they don't pay taxes. You know, they um, they refuse to wave Israeli flags, right? They are basically living in Israel because for, for for spiritual reasons, but reject the state of Israel for the reasons we just said. And then, of course, you have 
So you name reform, you name religious, and then you have Bundists and communist Jews who reject Zionism for their own reasons. Can you talk about that uh, segment, those segments? Look, I think, you know, many of the earliest Zionists, I think one of their key struggles was that they were also socialists and communists, right? And, and, so, and, and in fact, that even led to this movement called Brit Shalom in the 1920s, uh, th- this idea that you could create some kind of binational state in, in, in Palestine. Um, and that movement eventually uh, <clears throat> was disbanded. But, but, but obviously, you have this communist party in Palestine in the 1930s and 40s. And it's m- almost, I think it's almost entirely Jewish. There may have been a, a small number of Arabs or Palestinians who, who joined that party. I actually don't know the details of that. But um, m- maybe you know, you know about that history better than me, Katie. But obviously, from the perspective of a socialist, uh, from the perspective of a communist, you know, the idea that you would establish a state uh, based on an ethnicity or based on a religion. I mean, that that's also heresy, right? Like, it's the it's it, it's social class that is uh, supreme, and everything else are just distractions. And, and in fact, if anything, they're just convincing you it, it's a tool of, of the capitalists against the proletariat. That would be the argument that, a, that that a communist would make. And in fact, there were many Jewish communists who rejected Zionism for that reason over the years. And then may, maybe the final thing I would say is, which we didn't mention, I think it's always for, often forgotten that Jews. Throughout the Muslim uh, uh, countries, you know, you had an anti-Zionist league in Baghdad form, formed in the 1940s. And, and the Baghdad Jews were very well integrated in, in, in Iraqi society. 40% of Baghdad was Jewish in the 1940s. 40% of Baghdad was Jewish in the 1940s. They were, they occupied all of the, uh, you know, um, uh, the, the upper echelons of, uh, uh, in society. They were well integrated. They had no desire to leave and, and so you get this anti-Zionist movement being like, "What, yo, like, leave us out of this Zionism thing. We're good to go here." Um, so, so you get that, and then, and then, of course, in Egypt, you have a uh, same thing. You get basically an anti, you get a communist anti-Zionist Jewish party again in Egypt. Similar circumstances formula, form in the 1940s as well. Yeah, it's really fascinating history. So let's um, shift gears a little bit to today, and. Um, there's so many things I was going to ask you about, but okay, I'm going to focus on a couple of things. So today, obviously, the U.S. vetoed a U.N. resolution calling for a ceasefire. For This is the fourth time that they blocked the ceasefire. We actually have video of uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, making a statement about this uh, vote and what the plan is for the future of Israel-Palestine. And listen to her words. I intend to do this the right way so that we can create the right conditions for a safer, more peaceful future. And we will continue to actively engage in the hard work of direct diplomacy on the ground until we reach a final solution. A final solution? I mean, for people out there who don't know, that was literally the Nazi plan for Jews. That was the Holocaust was the final solution. You kind of can't make this up. Listen, Katie, I, I myself am very careful. Like I, you know, because of, because the Jews suffered this horrible uh, uh, genocide, you know, and they're so, and they're still traumatized by it. And they're carrying with that, that, that trauma with them to this day, including in, within my own family, right? My own grandparents. So it's, 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 it, I avoid making any comparisons to the Nazis like a hot plague. And, and I, I don't, I don't think people shouldn't do that. It's just, I understand that there's so much trauma. So to use that phrase, I think is just, I mean, just, just somewhat out of touch, especially when it's um, uh, the people of Gaza who are obviously 
the ones facing a genocide. I mean, I mean, uh, th- there was just about, by the way, on this question of, you know, the, the ceasefire, I mean, the United States government, through its veto, condemned, according to, so there was just a, a health report published by health experts. I just tweeted this out a few hours ago. Um, you know, because after, <clears throat> even once ceasefire uh, is in place, you know, you have communicable diseases, uh, you have <clears throat> all of these, you know, follow-on effects. You have injuries that are festering. There's no, you, people aren't getting proper follow-up treatment, wound care, right? All, all these preventable uh, uh, deaths are going to happen. And they even put together estimates. And now, now I'm citing from this report that was just released, I think it was last week. So if, if there was a ceasefire today, you'd get, their estimate is that in the next six months, you'd get something like 6,500 people would die in the next six months uh, um, from, from these, all of these follow-on reasons. But there's no ceasefire. So they said, basically, if current trends continue, leaving aside all the Palestinians that are slaughtered in the bombs and the targeted executions and the drone attacks, right? Leaving aside all of those deaths and, 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 and the famine and, and people who are literally dying from starvation, um, leaving aside all those deaths, there are, if current trends continue, 58,000 more Palestinians will die from preventable deaths in the next six months. So... It, 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 we, we literally, we, we literally have a government that is condemning tens of thousands of Palestinians to death, um, and it's what can you say? It's disgusting. Um, can you talk about the history of ethnic cleansing and what you think Israel's plan is right now vis-a-vis ethnic cleansing? Like, why is Israel doing what it's doing to Palestinians? Well, I think the short answer is that. There is this belief that the way you make life safe for Jews is by removing Palestinians from from historic Palestine. That has been the belief um, uh, for, for 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 more than seventy five years. It's it's beyond. It, so there's two layers of it, right? There's the belief about Jewish safety being uh, the, the belief about Palestinian dispossession and Palestinian expulsion being a necessary precondition for Jewish safety and Jewish existence. That's number one which is inextricably tied to point number two, which is that um, Jewish prosperity and Jewish, which is fundamentally tied to Jewish demographic control, um, is also a function of Palestinian dispossession and displacement. In other words, to preserve the Jewish majority, uh, you need to remove Palestinians from Palestine. Um, And I, I don't think Israelis were planning on expelling Palestinians from Gaza um, before uh, uh, before October seventh, they were they were happy to do it slowly. So the way they were doing it, so basically before October seventh, here's kind of how I would describe this policy, this overarching policy uh, dating to November nineteen forty seven of Jewish safety and Jewish prosperity are a function of Palestinian dispossession and displacement. The way it was being, uh, uh, I would say, pursued before October seventh was in a very roundabout, indirect way. Was you lock two million Palestinians into Gaza? And the only way out is by the sea or to Egypt. Um, and in fact, it was, it was an underreported trend uh, <clears throat> over the past few years. But um, having recently visited Gaza and talked to a lot of Palestinians um, in Gaza, every single person in Gaza knows someone who has left. It's underreported. You have a few, there's a few Arabic, Arabic language uh, media outlets who have, uh, have covered it, but you're talking tens of thousands of Palestinians have, because it's not being reported because Hamas doesn't want you to know about it. Israel doesn't really care. There's no international media there, so they're not reporting on it. 
So how do you know? How do you even? So, and and they go at night and they get on boats just like the Eritreans and Somalis and Sudanese and all the other refugees from Africa and North Africa have been doing. Uh, uh, cr- you know, crossing them and and Syrians and Lebanese that they've all been you know braving the high seas for hope for uh, in hopes for a better life in in Europe. And Gazans are doing exactly the same thing, uh, and that is uh, ultimately a, a direct consequence uh, of the siege on Gaza. Um, so that's how they're removing Palestinians from Gaza. Um, they're removing Palestinians from Jerusalem uh, through um, ba- basically the temporary uh, residency status that is issued to Jerusalemites, right? So um, they, they, they do not have Israeli citizenship, even though they're, they, they live in Israel. I mean, according to Israel, what Israel calls Israel, they live in Israel, um, but they don't have citizenship. They weren't given citizenship when Israel annexed East Jerusalem in 1967. And for the past 56 years, Israel has wanted to preserve a supermajority, a Jewish supermajority in Jerusalem. But how do you do that when you have 40% of the city is Palestinian? Well, uh, you strip thousands and thousands and thousands of Palestinians from East, uh, who, who, uh, of their residency rights. And they've done that with 15,000 Palestinians. And every year, a few hundred, a few thousand more. And, 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 and in fact, what they've actually done is pushed Palestinians um, out of the city, not just through the, 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 these, these, these uh, you know, racist laws about residency permits, but also by preventing Palestinians from building. Right? You cannot build a home in East Jerusalem. Good luck. You will not get a permit. 97% of permits are denied to Palestinians in East Jerusalem uh, to build. So if you can't build, um, where do you go? You can't move into Jewish neighborhoods because, I mean, have you met a Palestinian in Jerusalem who's tried to rent uh, uh, an apartment in West Jerusalem? Well, I encourage you to speak to some because the amount of racism and bigotry directed towards Palestinians trying to rent, rent in West Jerusalem is totally insane. And, then, and they can't build an East Jerusalem, so where do they go? They have to leave, and then they lose their residency status. So that's how Israel expels Palestinians from Jerusalem. And then from the West Bank, you're a, so West Bank is divided between areas A, B, and C, right? Areas A is Palestinian control, right? It's 20% of the West Bank. It's obviously not Palestinian control because the Israeli military enters area A multiple times a day in multiple places in the West Bank. But, but so, so Palestinians are being crowded into area A. In, in fact, in Area C, which is 60% of the West Bank, uh, you're 100 times more likely to be issued a home demolition order than you are to be granted a permit to build a home. And so you can't build. Um, in fact, what you do build gets destroyed in Masal Fergetta, where you have 2,000 Palestinians facing daily attacks since October 7th. Not weekly anymore. It used to be weekly. Now, they've, uh, now it's daily. Um, you have daily attacks in Khumsa in the north in the West Bank. Uh, you have many shepherding communities since October 7th, more than 1,500 Palestinians have been ethnically cleansed from their communities in the West Bank in the past four and a half months. So this is ongoing. Um, Khan al-Ahmar is constantly under threat. Um, Palestinians around the West Bank are constantly in Beitah. They're constantly attacked by the Israeli settlers who reestablished the post in the north. Um, so you basically have a situation in which no matter where you are, and then we haven't even talked about Israel proper. And the Naqab, you have, what, 60, 70 Palestinian villages, uh, Bedouin communities, who have been, by the way, the Bedouin have been in Israel-Palestine for centuries. Okay? You want to talk about indigeneity? They've been literally, I mean, probably more like millennia. Okay? These people are the indigenous inhabitants of Palestine, and their villages are unrecognized. So they can't build homes. They build a roof with stone, because you can't build a stone roof. Then it's a real structure. Then the Israeli military will come and demolish it. So it actually doesn't matter whether you're in Gaza whether you're in Jerusalem, whether you're in the West Bank, or whether you are in Israel proper. If you are a Palestinian, you are either discriminated against 
you can't find a home, you can't rent an apartment, or your village is unrecognized, or you're actively being ethnically cleansed, or you're actively, you know, basically having a genocide committed against you. Those are sort of the spectrum of options um, if you're Palestinian. So here, um, Brad has been distracting me by texting me. I wish he would just come on and make his point. But he was pushing back a little bit on the idea that this is a new phenomenon, a post-October 7th phenomenon. Here he is sending me more and more. But here's Israel gives nod to Gaza marine gas development, wants security assurances. That's from when is that from? Uh, I believe that is from June 2023. Then we have another interesting thing. This one is... Brad, you got it. When you do these things, you got to present them. Sorry, my, my my bad. No, it's okay. The the only other one of the other things I just wanted to mention, uh, Zach, I'm sure it's not news to you, was that I believe it was in September um, of 2022, um, Netanyahu was at the UN showing a map of Greater Israel that did not include Palestine, it in, and it, it uh, encompassed parts of uh, Egypt and Saudi Arabia. Um, and so, uh, when you said that this was, uh, the, they're wanting to, you know, um, rid the area of Palestinians was something that began after October 7th. That was like immediately where my mind went. It was like that. It seems to me like this was something that they've been kind of after, uh, for a little bit, for a little bit of time now. In fact, it, it, it dates all the way to June 18th and it dates all the way to June 18th, 1967, when the Israeli cabinet met. Uh, I, I've, I've tweeted about this multiple times. But um, when the Israeli cabinet met, they made a number of decisions. One of the decisions they made, and there was a, there was a, this, was, this has been public for decades. Um, there was a Washington Post article published, I believe, in 1988 about it. I, we can share a link in, in the show notes. But yeah. um, basically, the, the decision made in 1967 was Sinai, we don't want it. We'll give it back. We'll figure out a way of getting, giving it back to Egypt. Which which happened, um, but Gaza we want Gaza right because Gaza is part of historic Palestine. Um, so, <clears throat> but we don't want the Palestinians living in it. So once we figure out a way of ethnically cleansing them and pushing as many incentivizing as many uh, Palestinians in Gaza to leave, then we'll annex it. And in fact, from 1967 to 1970, I don't know. This is very little known history, but the Israeli government actually established a secret agency within it that was responsible for buying up land and helping Palestinians from Gaza find work in Latin America. What? Swear to God. This is little known. And then what happened was one of the Palestinians, because this is, this is all part of the same strategy, right? We want the land without the people living on it. Um, and that's been the case since 1878, all the way to the present. That, that's kind of the thread that ties all of these different Zionists and all of these different movements within the Zionist world. But basically, they they were, and then they convinced hundreds of Palestinians to actually go to Latin America from Gaza. And one of them, and it kind of blew back in their face when I think one of them didn't fully understand they wouldn't be allowed back. And then there, there was violence, and it blew up, and it became public. And I think they they ceased to do that. I think in the in 1970 or 1971. So it's just been this decades and decades kind of slow motion ethnic cleansing through various means, and then after October 7th, it's just mask off. Full blow, you know, yeah. This is this is always the case, right? It's it's hard to ethnically cleanse people during times of peace, right? Right. Um, That's why between 1967 and 1987, Israel only managed to expel 2,000 Palestinians from the occupied territories. It's hard. You like 
what's the justification? How are we going to do it? Right. You, you, it, it requires more planning. You have to do it. You have to time it with an American election so people aren't paying attention. Right. It's just much harder. Whereas during times of war, right, in 1948, 750,000 Palestinians uh, uh, expelled. 1967, 250,000 Palestinians expelled. 2023-24, million Palestinians displaced. We'll see how many they managed to push across uh, the border. Um, and 67, I'm, I should know this off the top of my head, but was that, were we, was America in Vietnam during that period of time? When is the Vietnam War? Um, I want to say it, it, it feels like, I mean, plus we had, we, we had a lot going on. So we were kind of distracted uh, around then, but, and this is just me completely speculating based on what you're saying. And now, now I'm like, geez, I need to follow Zach on Twitter now. Holy cow. Um, but this, this is my own speculation or whatever here. Uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but when you were saying now that they have a justification uh, to just go mask off and say it's a war, one thing that I immediately thought of was the reporting that, I don't know if it's proven or if it's just allegedly, that the Israeli government knew, what was it, like a year ahead of time that this uh, what what happened on October 7th was in the works, that, you know, my cynical view on it is like well if you're looking for an excuse to you know liquidate this entire area and you need a war uh as that reasoning that could be a reason for them not to uh stop it from happening because they can use that as justification for doing what they're doing yeah look i've heard these conspiracy theories there were there were 9-11 conspiracy whenever you have an atrocity of of this magnitude you're always going to get conspiracy theories I think my general view is that the argument that is made, I think, by uh, people who are trying to understand what happened, leaving aside the conspiracy theories, is that you have all these misogynistic, chauvinistic, sexist uh, Israeli um, commanders in charge uh, of uh, who are getting these reports from these young 18, 19 year old Israeli female soldiers. Right. And their arrogance and their misogynism leads them to ignore that. And I've met a lot of Israeli male soldiers, and that story checks out to me. Yeah, to, to to your point, I got to admit the intellectual part of me. What you just said is a lot more believable and provable than my option. <laughs> that yeah, that it's just chauvinists being like, eh, "Get out of here, lady." You know that makes sense. And, and look, and look, that we know, we know that uh, the, the the Israeli army really had the belief that basically Hamas was kind of finally coming around, right? You had the, the 2021 war in May 2021. It wasn't Hamas firing rockets. It was Isla- Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Recall, there was this belief that, you know, and, and then in 2022, what happened? Uh, Ham- you, you basically have 20,000 Palestinian workers from Gaza entering Israel, um, you know, 20,000 work permits. So there was this belief that Hamas is finally coming around. They're finally accepting their status as, you know, um, prison guards within the open air prison, and they're okay with that. They're they're good, and 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 so basically, they, you know, and 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 to me, that that is a very very plausible story, um, especially because it really did shock us all. No one saw that coming. I mean, we, you know, so um, look, I was in I was in Gaza on October second. No one saw it. I mean. You know, the, the, there was not like you, people weren't talking about a mass raid. There was, you know, it, it, 
you know, you can kind of live a semi-normal life. I mean, again, living in an open-air prison, but basically, you know, life proceeded on and Hamas, you know, was, you know, trying to basically manage and govern. And, uh, you know, they had all these new policies around taxi drivers and these new policies. I mean, they're clearly interested in governing, right? Well, I wanted to actually ask you about... uh... Thank you. Thank you, Zach. Absolutely. I want to actually ask you about the history of Hamas, if you could provide a little bit of that. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Well, Zach, thank you so much for coming. This has been such a great discussion. Definitely come back. We'd love to have you back on. I still have more things I want to ask you about. And tell people where they can find you. You can follow me on Twitter. I think my uh, handle's in the... I put it in there, yeah. Thanks for adding that, Katie. Um, you can also subscribe to my newsletter. Uh, I, I, I publish a piece every Friday. Um, it's, it's at uh, palestinenexus.com. And the name of the newsletter is Palestine in Your Inbox. And yeah, definitely come back. We'll talk about how you burnt your diploma next time. Your Princeton <laughs> diploma, yeah. Yeah, I would love to talk about that. That's fascinating, yeah. And guys, don't go anywhere because we're bringing on one more guest, Kevin Gastola, because speaking of human rights abuses and human rights violations, we are bringing on Kevin Gastola to talk about Julian Assange. And before we bring him on, we're going to be playing a CNN video about Julian Assange. Assange's argument for not being extradited to the U.S., Uh, There are several. Uh, One of them at the most basic level is that he has um, some mental health issues uh, and a concern that he may take his life if he's uh, moved to the U.S. to face trial. Another is that this is politically motivated. He was just a journalist doing his job. So it would uh, breach his human rights if he was uh, transferred to the U.S. Quite extraordinary claim now coming in uh, just in the last hour or so that his lawyers have presented to the court. Uh, obviously, we need to investigate this further, but this is always all presented in open court. Uh, uh, according to Assange's lawyer, there is compelling evidence now in existence that senior CIA and U.S. administration officials requested a detailed set of plans and drawings of the embassy, the Ecuadorian embassy. You'll remember he was holed up in for all of that time. And they are suggesting um, that President Trump at the time himself requested options and sketches were even drawn up. When we're talking about options, the legal team is basically suggesting that there was evidence of a CIA plot to kidnap or assassinate Julian Assange. Uh, These are extraordinary claims. Well, there are a lot of new details coming out. Again, those those accusations have to be verified and looked through. So... uh... That's fascinating because they're presenting that as breaking news. That's actually a story that was covered on this very show. Uh, it was covered at the Gray Zone, and I had Max Blumenthal on to talk about it. I know that our next guest also talked about it. It was written about um, uh, in El País and also Yahoo after the Gray Zone. Yahoo uh, did a story on it, Yahoo News. And someone who can talk more about that uh, and about Assange in general is our next guest, Kevin Gastola, who curates The Dissenter. He's the author of Guilty of Journalism, The Political Case Against Julian Assange, and he's the co-host of the podcast Unauthorized Disclosure. So welcome, Kevin. Hello, Hi, Kevin. Hello. How are you? 
good to be with you again. Good to talk with you. Thanks for joining. So uh, they just presented that news story about uh, the CIA having a plan to kill uh, Assange as if it were breaking news. What What's the backstory there? <laughs> Clowns. That's the backstory. The backstory is this is the U.S. press that doesn't typically cover this case. So I'm left wondering if they really just don't know because that guy's not been covering Julian Assange's case or if there's something else going on where they're trying to make it seem like uh, Julian Assange's uh, lawyers are being conspiracy theorists and trying to make up some kind of narrative to make it look like the U.S. government is crazy evil. But the fact is that that story that Yahoo News did it included some details that were from the gray zone, but it also had a lot of new details about Mike Pompeo and how unhinged he was and just the fact that he was absolutely embarrassed that Donald Trump, he was going to have to go to him and say, oh, guess what? There's been this massive leak. WikiLeaks is publishing files from the CIA about our cyber hacking abilities. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I lost control of these files. And uh, that he wanted to take out all of his anger and rage on Julian Assange. And he gave the speech, one of the, like the first public speech that he gave, it was half of it was all about WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. It was, it was insanity. And so um, these people, the journalists that did this, they're reputable individuals. Now, the idea that CNN doesn't know that Michael Isakoff, who was a big, huge Russia gate guy, that he wasn't working on this, credibly speaking. Right. It's not just the gray zone. It's unfathomable. So tell us where we are in this case against Julian Assange and his extradition case. So the way things are going today, I mean, the, the hearing was an opportunity for Julian Assange's lawyers to go into the high court and say that they would like to appeal the extradition. Uh, we're hoping that this High Court will grant a full appeal he- he- sorry a full appeal hearing otherwise what that means is there is no route for Julian Assange in the UK legal system after today and it almost virtually guarantees that he's going to be extradited to the United States so they were putting on um, a lot of this like really important evidence primarily all the things they were saying related to how they believe the district judge her name was Vanessa Baretzer didn't give this the attention it deserved. And when they when she was told things like, this is a politically motivated case, Donald Trump uh, let Mike Pompeo and Jeff Sessions run amok and go and turn the Justice Department into this institution that would target people who were exercising their First Amendment rights. You know, she was just like, well, I don't see that. I think they've been following a process and it's been fair and I'm not going to do anything to save Julian Assange, although she did get to the part where she saw this glaring evidence about how U.S. prisons and jails treat people here in this country, and they then she ruled that it would be oppressive for mental health reasons to extradite Julian Assange, which gave us a kind of surreal moment where it looked like Julian Assange could win. But the U.S. quickly remedied that by printing these lies on paper about how they would take care of Julian Assange's well-being if he was brought to the United States. So they basically, she was basically saying the prison system in the United States is so abusive that someone with mental health issues can't survive. And they're like, don't worry, we promise we're going to be nice to him, even though their promises were 
ridiculous. Yeah, and he, uh, we heard evidence back in September 2020 about how he is diagnosed with autism, or he's on the autism spectrum, and uh, these various issues that he has, and after psychiatrists have you know gone through therapy sessions and all of the trauma that he's gone through, being in arbitrary t- detention, uh, just so people are familiar fully with the saga, we're talking about going all the way back to the end of 2010, that he's been in detention in some form or another, whether it was house arrest or being in the London embassy, that the Ecuador's London embassy. And then uh, in 2019, he's been for five years in this Belmarsh high security prison that is often referred to or sometimes referred to as Britain's Guantanamo. And he had a stroke. He had a stroke. And recently we learn from Rebecca Vincent at Reporters Without Borders, who has been able to visit him finally like three or four times, that he had excessive coughing around Christmas and uh, he coughed and coughed and broke a rib because he suffers from osteoporosis. Now, people, as I shared this information with them, were reacting appropriately. And they thought, that shouldn't happen to somebody who's 52 years old. But if you know health, physical health, someone who is not able to go out and get sunlight and get vitamin D, their bones are going to deteriorate like this. And that's what's happened because of the cruelty. He does not have recreation outside regularly in Belmarsh. And he did not have any ability to go outside when he was in the Ecuador embassy because, well, he was stuck inside. And if he left and went outdoors, the British police were going to snatch him up. And he, uh, you know, Biden said last week that Putin is responsible for Navalny. So by that logic, of course, Biden is responsible for his stroke, for his osteoporosis, for his broken rib, for his torture, because the special rapporteur on torture has declared after examining Julian Assange, and this is a guy who was resistant to look into Julian Assange's case. He thought Julian Assange was a despicable character. Um, he finally looked into it and decided, and he was not prejudiced towards Assange, he was prejudiced against him, and, but he just looked at the facts and he's a special rapporteur on torture, Nils Meltzer, and he determined he was tortured. Yep, that's true. So what can people do? I mean, there's not a lot of time left. So what can people do? What can be done is forcing a political solution. We first have to understand, and I think most of your viewers will have a tough time because they're in tune with this issue a lot better than most viewers and Americans and others throughout the world. The legal system is not going to spare Julian Assange. So we don't wait for anything to happen. Yes, I can tell you, I could sit here and tell you all about how the European Court of Human Rights could hear Julian Assange's appeal if he doesn't get to have an appeal in the high court of justice, but then that's like three, four more years of his life that he might spend in prison if they even take it up. So what people need to know is that we have to keep calling out this hypocrisy Uh, in the same way that people are connecting the dots and making the right conclusions about the brazen exercise of power happening by Biden in Gaza or against Gaza or by supporting the Israeli government. You know, and we're seeing what's happening to 120, 130 plus journalists have basically been exterminated by the Israeli government or the Israeli military. We need to make the connection here that this Biden White House and the way that they 
excuse the actions of the Israeli government. It's the same way that they excuse the actions of the Justice Department right now. And we're essentially seeing a slow motion political assassination of a journalist. And and once you understand that the deflection and the unwillingness to take responsibility comes from this coldness among the Justice Department, because mind you, these aren't even the people who indicted Julian Assange. These are just the people who entered the Justice Department after Trump and said, you know what, we kind of like the idea that we might be able to put Julian Assange on trial. And that actually makes them worse, in my opinion, because they didn't, it makes them worse than Jeff Sessions and Bill Barr and the people underneath who actually formulated this plan to get Julian Assange expelled from the Ecuador embassy and bring him to trial in the United States. Because they don't even really have a commitment to it. They just inherited it and they said, well, we don't really feel like doing anything different. We're just going to continue with this business. And when you ask them questions, as reporters try to do, they get the same kind of deflection and spin and ridiculous nonsense that you're seeing from Matthew Miller on Gaza. And in fact, Matthew Miller is a character in this story. People may not know, but I know Matthew Miller because Matthew Miller was the guy who was a former spokesperson of the Justice Department and in 2013 told the Washington Post to help them with their reporting that, yes, the Obama administration had uncovered this New York Times problem. You might have heard about this. The New York Times problem was there's no way to prosecute Julian Assange without also prosecuting Washington Post, New York Times, and The Guardian, these newspapers that also had published the leaks just like Julian Assange. And so now we have Biden. Biden was vice president in the Obama White House. And this departure, it's it's incredible that this is something he's sticking with. But even more disheartening, and this is where people come in, even more disheartening is that you have members of Congress that have introduced a resolution saying very basically, this is the last thing I'll, I'll add here on what people can do, because it is something they can do, but there's sort of like a, a bittersweet angle to it because we're not really clicking yet. There's not a lot of momentum and we need to change that so Julian Assange will be spared. There are 12 members of Congress that have signed on to this resolution, Republicans and Democrats, to say basically, the First Amendment protects freedom of the press. If you believe in the First Amendment, then we should drop the charges against Julian Assange and not extradite him to the United States. It's that simple. Only 12. There are 435 representatives in Congress. Anyone could sign on to it. Anyone could sign on to it at any moment. That's what needs to happen. But for right now, we don't have a lot of sponsors. So we're left just sending these open letters to Merrick Garland. I don't think he needs another open letter. I understand that organizations, press freedom organizations, this is important work that they're doing, and I'm glad they're doing it. But Merrick Garland has probably received like 10, 12 open letters at this point telling him about the issues. He knows, and he's not doing anything to stop it. And uh, you know, we need, to, we need to move to Congress actually challenging the White House and this administration. Call them in for a hearing. Have somebody organize a hearing and do a review of how this has all been handled. What was the CIA and Justice Department doing? And why was Julian Assange ever even indicted? 
And can you explain, because that's, that CNN piece didn't do a great job of it, explain the story about how the CIA looked into uh, killing him? Yes, so the story is that Mike Pompeo is, with other high-ranking officials, asking for plans, sketches of these plans. So how could we do this? Well, one idea was, let's kidnap Julian Assange. Uh, and by the way, there's this company called UC Global. It's a Spanish security company. They were contracted to provide the security for the Ecuador, for Ecuador's embassy. Rafael Correa actually brought them in. And actually, it turns out that Rafael Correa was targeted by UC Global, and that was also passed on and, and handed back to the CIA. So he's in there and he's saying, what if we leave the door open? The idea in UC Global is like, just leave the door open. And then I guess some agents or even police can just come in, take Julian Assange and haul him out of the embassy. And they say, oops, we're sorry. We left the door open. Uh, they talked about poisoning him potentially, which to me just harkens back to or evokes memories of the many there were numerous plots, crazy plots, trying to kill Fidel Castro when he was. Um, or also, that's how they uh, for Patrice Lumumba, who was the Congo um, president. That was that the idea was that he could get poison toothpaste. That was something the CIA developed. So I'm thinking maybe they would have done like poison toothpaste for Julian Assange or something like that. So then they could outright kill him. Um, and actually, they were seriously considering rendition for Julian Assange. The Justice Department was afraid. One thing that isn't exactly appreciated about this story, about what the CIA was doing to Julian Assange, is that the Justice Department freaked out. And that actually, Pompeo knew what he was doing by saying that the CIA was going to get involved in this way. They were you know, you talk about this rules-based order, which is a joke, but the Justice Department was saying, oh no, Julian Assange is going to arrive in the United States and we're not going to have an indictment against him. So we need to scramble and get something together. And they actually did. And then there's this drama around um, Christmas time when the Ecuador was going to give him a diplomatic passport and try to get him out of the embassy. And all this surveillance that was happening with CIA support they knew that he was going to leave, so they basically kind of intimidated the lawyers and, and, and got them to understand that if they tried this now, Julian Assange was going to be arrested because they had figured out through this surveillance that he was going to try to leave the embassy. And then from that point on, they there was an international arrest warrant, and he no longer could exit the embassy uh, because of that. And, you know, we've been focusing on my show a lot on Israel-Palestine. And so a lot of people watching this obviously are very passionate about that. What did Julian Assange tell us about uh, Israel-Palestine? What did WikiLeaks reveal? Yeah, so some of the details are showing that uh, Israel, I mean, we, we obviously we know this now, we can see it. They're ready to just obliterate it and wipe it off the map. But there was a cable that talked about the deliberate effort to keep Gaza on the brink of economic collapse. And, and that was something that they consciously wanted to do because it gave them the leverage that they wanted to control the population. We see details about one of the earlier operations, Operation Castled, in which uh, Israel actually told the Palestinian Authority, um, told uh, Egypt as well, 
beforehand what they were going to do. And uh, the prime minister just sat back and didn't say anything about it so that um, Palestinians could flee or uh, take whatever measures necessary to not be bombed and killed. And uh, so that, that's another thing we, we see a one cable that's uh, just, just shows you the cruelty. Uh, there's a discussion about how they're going to use skunk water, the, the, the dirty water that they shoot at protesters in the West bank. And, uh, and then it rises to the level of farce just a little bit because they're worried that the Palestinian prime minister is going to go to one of these demonstrations and actually get attacked with skunk water as well. And that's not going to be good for them because they'll have to deal with the aftermath of his anger that he was attacked by the Israeli military forces. So, so that's in there. Uh, Netanyahu declared the Goldstone Report, uh, which was this review of the, it was, I believe it was Apparition Castled. And uh, it was one of the like top three threats. He was really upset about it and that there were going to be some kind of accountability for Israeli crimes. And uh, that's in the cables. And then there are some things I would recommend people look up. I'll just, I know he's been on this show. I'll direct you to it because it's a good little handy thing. Um, Asa Win Stanley uh, did a thing, uh, Insights on Palestine from the Cables. And that's good. There's some good highlights. And uh, later he went back and grabbed some additional tidbits of, of some of the people who the Cables exposed as being spooks who were working for the Israeli government. Or, you know, they have these nonprofit looking centers, but really they're working for. Mossad or something like that. Well, great. And when is this decision going to come down? We believe that it'll be within days after this hearing. Uh, it, it will be fairly immediate because this isn't really a full appeal hearing. This is just the court trying to determine if they're going to even give Julian Assange an appeal hearing. And I would leave everyone with the thought that, yes, like when I read through the materials, it's not a debate that should be had. It's pretty clear. All the work that's been done by Julian Assange's attorneys show that no matter what side you're on, they show that like, clearly you should give him a hearing and let all of these issues be aired out in the open. We not go through it slapdash and very quickly the way that we have today. Cause we went through quite a bit. It's a rather overwhelming. And obviously we don't have time on your show tonight, but even to just, mention all the issues and to follow it like journalists have tried to follow it today in London, it's a bit overwhelming because it's just, this is a saga that has gone on for almost 15 years. And we're talking about some extremely intense and deep issues with how cruel and just unreasonable the United States has been about this in every way. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. As always, you're great on this issue, so thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. 
Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordoba. See you next time. Bye.